Hello and welcome to a special edition of Think Sustainability for World Food Day. I'm your host, Marlene Even. This World Food Day is particularly significant as the first United Nations Global Food Systems Summit recently took place. The summit was guided by five action tracks. In this episode, we are talking about action number five, build resilience to vulnerabilities, shocks and stress. Without a doubt, food systems have had their resilience tested. The pandemic has exacerbated the vulnerabilities and stress that we already had within our food systems beforehand. In a moment's time, we'll be joined by a guest panel to discuss what role short food supply chains have in sustainable, resilient food systems. Firstly, I would like to introduce you to Dr. Federico Davila. He is a research director and senior research fellow at the Institute for Sustainable Futures at the University of Technology, Sydney. Federico, could you tell us a bit about your work that you do for the Institute? Thank you for having me, Marlene. So our Institute has a general mission to create change towards sustainable futures. My research focuses largely on this concept of food systems transformation, uh, intentionally moving them towards a better future. And I focus on Pacific Island countries. Uh, My research largely focuses on collaborations uh, with regional agencies trying to support Pacific policies uh, in food systems that integrate food production, value chains and health outcomes. And I also do some work focused on how smallholder farmers and fishers are adapting to changes caused by climate change and socioeconomic changes such as COVID-19. And our next guest is Dr. Kimberly Rees, an environmental and social planning lecturer at Griffith University. Kimberly, you lead a project on local food resilience and contingency at the Cities Research Institute. Could you give us an example of what you do in your work? We've found from our research that if you're going to look at local food systems from a disaster management perspective, you really need to be able to help communities to normalise their access to local food as a part of everyday life. And when those operations become more normalised, we can actually create a plan B or a plan C to access that food when times get tough. So that when um, food systems break down, whether it's uh, from interruptions to food supply chains from severe weather events or pandemic conditions, we can say, okay, this is our plan for activating those shorter food supply chains. And our third guest is Serenity Hill, co-founder of the Open Food Network and a director of both Open Food Foundation and Open Food Network Australia. Now, we will be talking about what Open Food Network is very soon, but for now, Serenity, did you want to tell us a little bit about yourself? I am a farmer, actually, in northeast Victoria. We have um, a regenerative farm. We produce lamb. For the last 10 years, I've been working in this food systems space, developing the Open Food Network to try and better meet the needs of farmers um, to increase diversity of market access for farmers and to build a better food system. We do multiple things in that space. So the Open Food Network platform that um, you mentioned is is an online platform for farmers to sell food. 
And the special thing about the platform is that it enables collaboration between farmers. So this is where the link is to the discussion of kind of local and regional food systems. In this episode, we are discussing what role short food supply chains have in the resilience of food systems. So when we discuss a food supply chain, it's all the connections in how our food gets from A to B. There are different definitions of what a short food supply chain is, but a simple way to think of it is a shorter food supply chain means fewer links in the chain between the farmer and the consumer. In a conventional long food supply chain, the food is going through multiple links, farming, harvesting, processing, packaging, transporting, distributing, selling, and then to the consumer. A short food supply chain has less links. So for example, a farmer's market where it goes straight from the farmer to you. So when we're talking about shorter food supply chains, it's uh, really shifting from what we would normally understand as those long food supply chains, which are global and which would reach across Australia. So when we're looking at shorter, we're looking at, well, what fits within our own uh, geographical region? So we could use that word local and regional in an interchangeable kind of way, depending on the context we're talking about. And what's really important about that is that these shorter supply chains enable people to be participants and co-producers in the, in the food supply chain. So it changes the dynamics around how we relate with food. Thank you. And I think we've had a lot of discussion lately around food supply availability and food supply resilience, um, especially during the pandemic. So in Australia, we produce more food than we consume. We export around 70% of agricultural production and more than 90% of the fresh food sold in supermarkets is produced in Australia. So what role do short food supply chains play in resilience of Australia's food systems? So resilience is a word that we use very commonly in disaster risk management. And in disaster risk management, we talk about um, the importance of shared responsibility. We understand that as emergency managers and crisis managers, that resilience works better when we all have a role to play in our own resilience. The Australian government recognises that it's not about communities sitting back and waiting for services to come in and do for them because this requires a, a certain dependence on communities. We know from the research, and the research says very clearly that where communities are able to step up where they want to, they're more resilient. And I would add to that, that from disaster risk management, we know that one size solutions do not fit all circumstances. And this is why it's so important that we take a place-based approach to problem solving. We can't say, this is our blanket solution for dealing with short food supply chains, we need to take a, a, an approach that recognises that one place is different from another. Serenity, did you have a response to that? Yeah, I've got some things to, to add. I think, um, yeah, the key 
because in going into this kind of complex world where shocks are, you know, we can't predict, you know, so we can do some contingency planning, but then there can be layered kind of shocks and pressures that work together to kind of in local areas that we can't plan ahead for. And that's where these, the, the key is diversity and also the trust building that happens in kind of building these local food systems. So I totally agree with that. No one size fits all. Like we want lots of different enterprises um, working with, with different groups of people who are creating that diversity in the system. And I would also say that's like at the local level, at the kind of regional level and at the bigger supply chain as well. Like we're still going to rely on, on longer food supply systems. It just means that by strengthening our local and regional food systems, we're adding kind of options in there um, to, to respond to these shocks. And Serenity highlights that the trust networks within local food systems are one of their key strengths. There's some studies done on um, flooding in Queensland and with Food Connect Brisbane, um, which is an enterprise that we work with. And what happened was there was very unpredictable things that happened. Bridges went down and they were able to use their very extensive um, just people trust networks with producers and other people to get on the phone and to come up with solutions on the fly. And you can't kind of do that mid-disaster. Like it's it's building on many years of, of trust and relationship building that happens over time, which is some of the magic that happens in local and regional food supply systems. You're listening to a special edition of Think Sustainability for World Food Day. This year's theme is Our Actions Are Our Future. The Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations encourages actions on multiple levels, including consumer power. Their campaign states that we can start by adding new locally grown and seasonal food to our diets, reducing food waste, refusing to buy food with excessive packaging, and reading up on the environmental and social impact of the foods we eat. Let's return to our conversation where Serenity explains what a values-aligned supply chain is. I'll throw in just another term here. Um, We also use the term values-based supply chains. So there's something in what's really important is that the problem with the kind of bigger food system is that there's costs that aren't accounted for. So producers, you know, there's that's why we're getting these environmental and social kind of impacts that aren't kind of built into the true cost of, of how we're paying for our food system. So we want to be able to support producers that are doing, you know, regenerative and 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 sustainable kind of producers and, and the social outcomes in the system. And the way that we do that is by the players along the supply chain all wanting to incorporate those costs and being values aligned and supporting everyone along the chain. And if you have a missing link, like, you know, you can, you can have the farmer and, and selling into the, the initial kind of um, provider and then down the track, you know, the transport provider is not kind of values aligned and not part of that system, then they'll take the excess. So, so we need this kind of like... Um, yeah, along even if food supply chains are longer, 
the most important thing is that you've got those values aligned players along who, who are all working to the same kind of broader outcomes. And usually that's happening more within the kind of the shorter supply chain space. So yeah, viability of producers through that collaboration across supply chains, the diversity and the trust is, is the kind of core to building um, resilience. Thank you so much for bringing that values supply chain. I'm really glad you brought that into the conversation. Um, Federico, I do want to get your response, but I'm also really interested in your opinion on how the food system differs in Pacific Island regions, which rely more on imported food. I think something that's quite important to highlight about the region is that the food system is actually very different depending on what part of the region we're talking about. So if we think, for example, of the North Pacific or Eastern Pacific countries that are very import dependent, like you say, Marlene, that makes local short supply chains actually very difficult to create because they've got very limited agricultural um, systems but they've got a very abundant coastal fisheries and oceanic fisheries systems. So what that means is that the local supply chains for what are very small populations are relatively stable for those key food commodities that they can either fish or grow in, in those countries. But what it does also mean is that they are essentially vulnerable and exposed to the international supply chains that bring a lot of the imported food to the countries that have created a series of health risks to these systems in terms of non-communicable diseases because of the access that these value chains have created to cheap, imported, more convenient foods. Now, we think of other parts of the Pacific closer to Australia, particularly Melanesia, countries like Vanuatu, Fiji, they have very active and very rich local supply chains. Let's remember that food like in many parts of the world in the Pacific, plays a very important cultural role and has a very long history of being more than just there to feed yourself, but also plays a very important cultural and ceremonial role in, in various Melanesian and Pacific communities. And these local supply chains are very rich. A lot of Pacific rural communities still are largely subsistence. They trade a lot of food within fairly confined geographies. Uh, they are fairly resilient when they can actually trade food between themselves or sell food to local markets. The vulnerabilities start getting a bit more exposed when we think of issues of climate change and sea level rise and particularly transport between islands to larger markets to sell some of the local produce. That's a very real risk because of the energy costs and the uncertainty of some of the shocks that are inevitably going to continue to happen and uh, the, the almost an inability we have to predict the future. So part of the resilience of these local supply chains in that part of the world really depends on the ability of communities and, and governments and donors to really help adapt and plan and anticipate what some of those changes might be. Now, I want to go to the example of the Open Food Network because I think it's a really interesting example of a short supply chain. So, Serenity, you've created this not-for-profit open source platform to distribute food online. 
Can you tell us about how this project works and, and why you created it in the first place? Yeah, so why we created it in the first place, I um, came from a farming family and we were, um, my partner and I were both kind of working with farmers and thinking about food systems and it, it very much came from wanting to support sustainability in the supply chain. We all talked about sustainability then a decade ago, not regenerative <laughs> the language changes, um, but it was about recognising that farmers couldn't be good environmental stewards while also selling into commodity supply chains because they were just, you know, the price was too low and not accounting for all the costs. So we could see, you know, we wanted to see and support what is going on with um with alternative food supply chains. And we could see that farmers markets are amazing and individual farmers selling their own kind of produce and managing their own supply chains. It's amazing and it's all part of the system, but we wanted to support um, scaling out and more food moving through these kind of alternative systems. And we could see the potential for enabling um, transparent supply chains and, and collaboration in that space as being really key. And, and basically what it does is farmers can have their own online shop, uh, but they can also sell through other um, community food enterprises that are on the Open Food Network as well, or they could join together with their neighbours and set up a, a, a multi-farmer shop. And, and the software enables that kind of transparency. So whoever the consumer buys from, they can see back to the original um, producer and they can see how much they got paid. The Open Food Network is being used in around 20 countries. Enabling farmers to sell their own produce and manage their own supply chains became a lifeline when farmers markets closed down during the COVID-19 restrictions. Serenity gives us an example of farmers in northeast Victoria using the website at the start of the pandemic. So Strathbogie Local is a good example where, you know, they started working with less than 10 producers. They've got kind of 30 producers now and it's just a pop-up. So people pre-order from this group of farmers on this one um, shop and uh, the farmers bring the food and volunteers pack the boxes on a Friday and customers pick up in the afternoon. So it's a very, very low cost, not requiring, you know, this expensive infrastructure and it can be set up really quickly and test collaboration. And then, then that group might find that they want to expand and, and kind of get bigger and, and build their own infrastructure, all this sort of stuff, but it enables communities to test and, and little groups of farmers, two or three farmers working together, enables them to kind of test and build trust and, and experiment with different things that might work in their, in their food system. I might also reflect that um, in part, it, it, oh, this conversation is really interesting because it relates to the big concept of transforming food systems in an uncertain world in terms of climate change and COVID and these inevitable shocks that uh, are going to happen. And so, so something that's quite interesting about this conversation is that we're really talking about the social capital and social cohesion that can emerge from different types of food systems that exist in different geographies and in different cultures the lockdown situation in a way has almost exemplified how important food is to maintaining not only health like physical well-being but also mental well-being you know we've seen really positive stories of how people have actually learned new skills and have managed the the impacts of lockdown through connecting with food and i think those social dimensions 
of food are increasingly being recognized as crucial for these food systems transformations that are needed. And uh, the works, for example, that Serenity has been talking about really showcases how the social dimensions of food are just as important as the biophysical and technical dimensions of food. We've been talking today about the resilience of the Australian food supply chain and what role the short food supply chain has in that resilience. I was reading a document published by the Australian government in 2012, and it said where the Australian food supply chain is potentially vulnerable is in large scale events such as a human or animal pandemic or a national fuel shortage or a combination of events that affect multiple links of the food supply chain at the same time. So we've experienced quite a lot of examples of the global food supply chain having their resilience tested. So I wanna end this conversation by asking you, what lessons do we take from this? What solutions do we already have that we can use? The importance of local and regional supply chains and recognising that there's lots of things kind of happening in regions and what would be amazing and, and what we have recently got um, some funding for and would be amazing if there was more government and philanthropic funding to support regional work to actually bring people to, together to create new solutions together. But there is definitely a role for, for government and philanthropy to come in and help um, build more regionally resilient food systems. And I think definitely this pandemic has shown, like I live very close to um, Shepparton, which was, which was kind of a hotspot and still is in Victoria. And, and there was a lot of tier one exposure sites that were part of the food system and they had a really um, challenging local situation. Um, yeah. So it's very alive and well, and should be in the forefront of kind of government minds in terms of how we build this, this localized resilience. Dr. Kimberly Rees has been working closely with Cairns Regional Council in creating contingency plans for local food resilience in the area. Cairns is a city in tropical far north Queensland in Australia, not too far from the Great Barrier Reef and the Daintree Rainforest. It's a region that is prone to flooding, tropical cyclones, heat waves and storms. Yeah, so I'd weigh into that giving um, the Cairns region as an, as an example, and I'd say that there are probably two aspects to food insecurity I'd like to talk about here. One is the acute experience, and that's why we have these, these spikes in disruption due to severe weather events or people raiding supermarket shelves. We know that up in Cairns, for example, which is not a major food bowl, that food that is produced in Cairns gets trucked down to the Brisbane uh, Rockley markets and then gets trucked back up to Cairns again and then is sold in the supermarkets. And any local grower in Cairns will, is acutely aware of this and the insanity of it and the need to um, build stronger networks for the, the Cairns-based uh, producers. The other side of the equation for Cairns is the, uh, the chronic experience of food disadvantage. You know, there are various factors involved with that. And it's, Cairns is not alone. There are other areas that have um, demographics experience the ongoing struggle of accessing uh, the fresh food that they need. Um, 
one thing that's interesting to me as a researcher, as a sociologist, is observing now that with the increasing casualization of the workforce, and it's only going to get worse, is that we're seeing emerging groups of people experiencing chronic food disadvantage. And we don't know what the future holds if we have severe weather events compounded by ongoing chronic pandemic conditions, to what extent that experience of chronic food disadvantage can be ex exacerbated. And I would say that to the general public, when we experience spikes of food disruption, it gives us a taste of what our fellow Australians experience on an ongoing, never-ending basis. I think there was a lot of lessons for food systems and we're still learning a lot of how food systems can adapt to these shocks. Uh, based on a study we did supported by the Australian government last year, we talked to a range of people from Pacific Islands working in agriculture and food security policy on how uh, particularly farmers and consumers were adapting to things like lockdowns, movement restrictions and supply chain disruptions. The diversity of production actually plays a really important role in the immediate food security of rural communities. In these contexts, remember that Pacific uh, farms are often very small, two hectares compared to the very large uh, Australian farms. And we found that the families and communities that had very diverse produce on their immediate regions were more adaptive and were able to meet their food security needs when lockdown restrictions hit. Dr. Federico de Villa highlights the importance of embedding agriculture as a recovery strategy. Agriculture plays a really important role in everyday livelihoods and economic development. What, what I mean by embedding agriculture into recovery policy, what we found, for example, in some countries like Solomon Islands and Vanuatu, was that because of the lockdowns, a lot of people lost jobs in tourism sector or in other eco economic sectors, but a lot of these people still had connections to rural areas. And government responses included the provisioning of basic planting materials or seeds to grow food. And what that actually meant was that there was a relatively rapid access to immediate basic foods in the very intense lockdowns of 2020 in the Pacific region. Now, this has obviously changed as the pandemic has changed, but there's, there can be potential creative ways of using agriculture as a recovery strategy for future shocks, not only in the Pacific, but I think in Australia and other parts of the world as well. Thank you all so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. That was great. It was great to hear from you, Kim and Serenity. That was fun. Thank you so much, guys. It was a pleasure. You've heard from Dr. Federico de Villa, Research Director and Senior Research Fellow at the Institute for Sustainable Futures at the University of Technology, Sydney. Dr. Kimberly Rees, an Environmental and Social Planning Lecturer at Griffith University. And Serenity Hill, the co-founder of the Open Food Network and a director of both Open Food Foundation and Open Food Network Australia. Think Sustainability is made possible with the support of 2SER Radio, the University of Technology Sydney, and is heard around Australia on the Community Radio Network. Think Sustainability is made in Sydney, which sits on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation whose sovereignty was never ceded. 
You can subscribe to Think Sustainability wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Marlene Even. Thanks for your company.